Hi, everyone over here. We um, are repositioning the uh, camera screen. Uh, and though I have you as close as possible to me, um, so we can uh, not block our view of the ancestor. So um, in front of me, as, you, as many of you have seen, is Buddha and Kuan Yin and the beautiful mountain and sky that's clearing up in front of me. And then to the sides are all the monks. And then you are here on a chair <laughs> right near me. Wonderful to sit together with, with all together. And I hope next month we can, at least for some of us, be able to sit together in person. I, we're actually doing a three-day sashin here with the monks, so we've been sitting. Um, I gave a little bit of a talk on Thursday night, and then yesterday we sat all day with uh, what we say, no toys, no dokasan, <laughs> um, and uh, just in silence. So we, I think we sat like 13 periods yesterday, and so I hope, uh, I hope that provides a support for your entering into the sitting. So um, as I was telling the, the monks here Thursday night that um, the idea for the topic of the talk came out of um, a recognition of something uh, that was happening with me that I saw as a fruit of practice. And so I wanted to kind of unpack that today with you and um, see if it can offer you something too. Just sometimes by naming something and looking at it, we can um, take, it, take it as, a, uh, as something that can support us. So uh, I was explaining to the monks, I, I think for like about the last month or so, I um, have been feeling uh, a lot of heaviness in my body, don't know what it's about, and I also noticed that there was a capacity to hold this heaviness, which I think really has something to do with death, because the word death kept coming up. And, you know, it's not surprising. Uh, we have been in the dead of winter this past month. It's just been bitter cold, everything's been iced over, um, my hands sometimes feel like uh, a dying person's hands. They're kind of cold and my, my extremities are cold. And of course, in a wider way, there is so much um, sensitivity to death right now. And there has been. So, um, what I was mentioning was that even with this heaviness and this uh, painful feeling, I had noticed that my body was actually fine. And uh, I, was, I had energy and capacity to get through my day and to do what I needed to do. And so the word that was coming up, kept coming up for me, was I was able to um, rely on a sense of composure in the midst of um, a kind of deep internal process that was happening for me. So we've been kind of playing with words uh, organically this 
this little section of time I know um, Ian had talked about gratitude and I had talked about forgiveness and so the word composure came up. So I got curious about it because it's not a word that I really resonate with. <laughs> and so I looked it up and um, the, the Latin roots, com is Latin root for together, besides, nearby, and with. And then the second part of the word, P-O-S-E-R, is from the Latin poser, which is to halt, to pause, and to rest. And when I found that definition, I got excited because there's something there that feels really familiar, and, and it's, a, it's a, an embodied word. So I love embodied words because they point me to something behind my head. So the imagery of gathering into rest, being with, pause, are together stopping, yielding, putting down. And as I explored it, I realized that um, what I'm calling true composure or deep composure is not just a, a physical posture, but it's a, a kind of way of being that we cultivate in our practice. We are, we are a composure school, you could say. And composure is really as much an attitude and a felt sense of a certain kind of presence as much as it is um, a kind of physical thing. You know, we know what it looks like when someone's composed. We can feel what it looks like when someone has composure. It feels like you, when someone is deeply composed or has deep composure, they're not pulled around by the things of the world that there's some kind of harmony or balance. And for me, this uh, sense of a true composure, which is embodied every day in the Zendo by, by the Buddha, by Avalokiteshvara, is a composure that's um, responsive and dynamic. So even though there's a stillness, you almost feel like at any moment one of these two will jump off the <laughs> altar and come and respond to a request. And what's lovely, I think, about this idea about true composure is that zazen and sitting is all about training in composure and we deepen and de we develop and deepen composure. And we also, in, just as Dogen expresses, every time we sit on the cushion, from the first moment we sit on the cushion, we are embodying the expression of composure. Now, one of the reasons I have an issue or a historical issue with composure is because, or that I think sometimes Zen Zen training, Zen students, Zen practice can be um, critiqued 
or misunderstood is that um, for many of us, we uh, have all developed strategies to look as if we're composed, to look as if we have composure. This is, this is like a false composure. Uh, it's more like a holding ourselves together. And, um, you know, composure also comes from the, uh, comes, is close in definition to this idea of posture, of poise, or posing, or composing. I almost brought a picture of me when I was a four-year-old girl. This is the 1960s. I was taken, somebody, some, we had somebody come in and take pictures of me and my sisters. And so uh, we were, we were told to sit very still. I remember my hair was up, I had this little white dress on, <laughs> little boots, and I was told to sit really still. I have a picture, of, I have a picture of me still like this. And I, I had my hands like this on my lap. My, and then they told me to put my head up like this. <laughs> almost like looking up and staying still like this. It was, it was, I hated it. <laughs> that is not composure. That is a composition. You can almost say a patriarchal composition of a polite, non-threatening girl. And I learned that deeply. Inside, really, my, my posture was more like this. <laughs> and it's a survival skill. Sometimes we have to enact a composure in order to um, not be threatened or not appear threatening. So when I first went to Zen Center, San Francisco Zen Center, I felt as if um, everybody was uh, completely poised and composed and still in this way that made me feel as if my aliveness wasn't allowed that something about the internal dynamic of my being had to be kind of shut down or put into a box in order to look and act like the rest of the folks there. Now some of this was projection and some of this was a sense I got that there wasn't quite a very wide range. <laughs> I, I discovered sometimes when I poke or prod or look for a kind of um, more dynamic composure. So we can do that, we can sit still, we can follow the forms, and internally we're tight and rigid and greedy and easily thrown off. And we, we all have to go through this process, and it's not even bad that we try to embody it from the outside in, you know, and Everyone has had this experience going into a role. You are trying to embody this role, and then um, a mistake happens. <laughs> All your composure is gone. <laughs> All of a sudden, 
what happened. And I do believe that we actually have to work through our false composure, our fragile composure, over and over and over until we can um, feel a sense of taking refuge in a deep, still, dynamic, responsive, open, present, true composure. So the main way we do this, um, and I can see everyone in the room and here doing it right now, is we um, sit still and we go into zazen posture. So the zazen posture, uh, we take one's dharma seat and then we start gathering things together. So we start to sit down and then we gather, gathering all the energy, all the stimulation of our minds, and we attempt to put it to rest. So gather and rest. So we start with a physical composure. aligning our mind into our hearts, into our hara, into the earth, with our spine erect. Our breath gathers everything together, connects us from the earth to the sky, opening up all these channels, or at least letting us notice where we're blocked. And in this composure, we may at first um, enact it or embody it with a lot of muscle tightening that we kind of, again, we're just kind of going into a posture and we don't know how to do it, we don't trust it, so we clench up. But really, this composure is one in which the muscles are deeply relaxed. They're all like soft, flowing. And we're just um, keeping ourselves upright with our spine and our bones. But we don't know. Our bodies don't know how to do this naturally. And so we overexert or we collapse and then we just return and return. This is what the day of sitting is about. So important. And it's important because when everything else fails, as Zen students, we learn to like just find that um, posture of Zazen, almost to help remind us of, of everything that goes with it. So then we uh, focus on gathering the mind. We talk about this all the time. We can have composure if our mind is not gathered. And so there is a paradox because we're putting things to rest and we're allowing things to be as they are, but we actually have to exert a kind of gentle, consistent effort for our mind to kind of stay gathered and not run all over the place. 
And if we want to deepen composure, presence, an ability to be responsive in the deepest way possible, we also have to let go of any concepts, any ideas, all the stories, all the to-do lists, all of, all of the stuff that throws us off balance. You know, it's, it's physical. If we are grabbing something, we're thrown off balance. We're also thrown off balance if we polarize our experiences into bad and good. Or if we push away what is negative, that causes us to lose our composure. So there's a deep kind of seeing that we cultivate, a clarity of seeing in order to stay on our seat. And when we have deep, true composure in our mind, we accept everything and we let everything be as it is. So we have our physical enactment of composure, our mental gathering of the mind and resting it. And then we bring our heart in. What I love about the idea of, of gathering and calm is also together and close. We gather it close. We gather it close, whatever is happening, into our hearts. And then we expand the capacity to uh, have a settled body and a settled mind in order to navigate the disruptions that happen. The pain, the grief, the fear. So we can look at what tends to disrupt our composure. When I am tired and when I am hungry, it is really hard. <laughs> the last period of zazen for me to have this ease in my body and in my heart. But again, as I was saying, it's good, it's good that these things come in because they test us and then we, we learn. So yesterday um, morning, we were sitting zazen, very silent, very still, and um, I heard a, a bark down at the bottom of the stairs, which was Molly. Um, asking to go out and she's been barking a lot even though she doesn't need to go out but we don't know what the difference is so the monks are all sitting quietly and I go down the stairs and I let her out um, and she immediately goes running down the hill barking at all the cars really loudly just running all around and I'm at the top of the hill, there's a big hill, and it's a big, snowy, icy hill. <laughs> I'm in my robes and my bare feet, 
and there is no um, shoes around except for flip-flops and I start to lose my composure. I am a little anxious about disturbing, having Molly disturb the monks while they're sitting. I also see Molly beginning to eat something she's not supposed to eat. That's very bad for her. I won't say what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and here I am at the top of the hill with flip-flops. So um, what do I do? I, I mean, I feel pretty composed. And so I, I, I put on these flip-flops and I start walking I'd slowly down this icy hill. Molly's barking and eating, and uh, it's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I walk about um, a foot, and then all of a sudden, I am in my robes, in my flip-flops, sliding down the hill to the bottom. And interestingly, in, in that moment, I actually felt very composed. I, it, even though I'm on my ass in my robes, on the snow, with my hands being scraped, I actually felt fine. Then I get to the bottom of the hill, Molly runs back up right away, no problem. <laughs> and I, I find these little Buddha prints of somebody's shoes that I, I, I make my way back up. Really, I lost my composure when I got back into the room. I sat back down with the monks, and then I had a a flood of all kinds of karmic uh, responses. You know, sometimes when something is threatening or un destabilizing or un you know, unnerving, we kind of somehow this field of ways to gain ground start to take hold. And I just had this very kind of familiar, comfortable story I go to, very, very uh, story of um, I'm just too embarrassed to admit <laughs> oh feel sorry for me story and um, I watch it just enlarge like a big flame in my mind and I and I was thinking in that moment like okay here's the composure piece you know and because I had been sitting zazen all morning my mind and my body could hold, my heart could hold, my mind could hold this, uh, this peace. So uh, we in Zazen and in this practice by being, we, we develop this composure and we do it by creating a big wide field. So we contain, as Suzuki Roshi says, in a big field. And then there is a process by which we have to let go of that level of composure and move to even letting go of the container of, um, of the wide field. So the other... Um, thing I wanted to mention about composure is how the ancestors uh, embody composure. So we learn and we come to understand that we can never deeply let go of our false composures. 
until we uh, recognize that we can't embody true composure on our own. We need to rest in something deeper and enlarge and expand our sense of who we are. This idea of all my relations, the earth, my ancestors, my spiritual ancestors, all beings. And we watch the earth and watch how trees have true composure. We see how our ancestors embody true composure. And we are taught and learn little by little that um, our natural state actually is a deeply composed one, one that is alive and responsive and still. And we need this, you know, we, we, um, I think there's a mistake that happens um, or misunderstanding that happens is that this is not quietude. This is a capacity to actually be able to meet the pain of the world. I mean, Kuan Yin it hears and listens and includes the cries of the world and how composed she must be to be able to do that. And in order to really be skillful with each other, to be able to care for each other's pain, care for the harm that we cause each other, we have to be able to be deeply, have deep composure. So we can hear and we can listen and we can pause when somebody gives us feedback or challenges us. And it's not something we do with our minds, it's something our body already knows how to do. And we, we do this in greater and greater ways until we are able to be deeply composed and present and still and open birth and death. This is what our ancestors are teaching us. You know, the image that comes to mind is an image of an elder You know, someone's, some grandmother or grandfather sitting on the porch in the back who's looked at and seen and lived through countless births, countless deaths, countless losses. You know, they have that look on their face where they're maybe looking back at their lives from when they were 
five years old or they're imagining what their life is going to look like for their grandchild. It's kind of that kind of composure. You know, I, I, I've, I've lived through this, I've seen it, I've developed the capacity to let my heart break. I was saying that on Thursday night that, you know, when we sit Sazen, when we sit Sashin, we're opening up um, our bodies and our minds and our hearts, we're cultivating a, a ground for what's below to come up, or who wants to visit to come visit. And this morning I, I had a visit from my, uh, when I was thinking of elders and back porches, I was, and I was thinking of my Italian grandfather. He came over on a boat from Italy, him, when he was maybe seven years old, and his brother, when his brother was nine years old, all by themselves, the parents sent the children to meet a relative in Williamsburg. So here he is, seven years old, facing birth and death, and uh, Pretty young, he gets a job in a factory. I don't think he ever finished um, more than elementary school. And um, in elementary, and when he he goes to work in a factory, and then he has an accident and, and he loses his eye. So this is what I remember about my grandfather. He had a glass eye. <laughs> I was fascinated with this glass eye, <laughs> wondering if he took it out, if he played with it. <laughs> Just loved looking at his face, and I loved his glass eye. And my grandfather spent 50 years every day. He literally had one of those little lunch boxes. Take his lunch, my grandmother would pack his lunch box up and he would go and his job was to, um, I may have mentioned this before, to like clean out the inside of huge milk vats, the tanks. So my grandfather spent 50 years of his life cleaning out of that, coming home at night, going to sleep, going back. He, his parents never joined him in America. And yet, the thing about my grandpa was he was so fun and sweet and full of life. He was also a photographer and made me do those terrible poses all the time, but I felt free with him. And, um, and his life is no different than all of our lives. We all face challenges, sufferings, disappointments. And if we are skillful with them, the suffering is what allows us to um, develop this capacity. It's not a guarantee. That's why we sit. That's why we sit together.
And when someone in community comes to me and wants to give me feedback, which I know is not going to be good, <laughs> I, I compose myself. I calm myself down. I open up my heart. I connect to the earth. Because I know what I'm about to receive is a gift. and an opportunity. And maybe when I'm alone, I let myself fall apart, you know. <laughs> but something deepens in my capacity. Mostly now, you know, sitting becomes a, a real place to rest and to soften with every um, experience that arises. And allows visitations of treasured, cherished people in your life, deep experiences a widening of a capacity to see this world and sense into what's needed and and it's often spoken about that this meditation and this sitting is a practice to meet our own death And we have all these little deaths, these mini deaths, these breaking apart of things we love. And we develop a kind of um, capacity. And the thing about real true composure is also such an offering for other people. You know, when you meet somebody, um, you can just feel they can hold you. It, it engenders confidence, you know, and makes people feel at ease and safe. And this is what we want to do with bodhisattvas. So I spoke about my um, Italian grandpa, and I want to talk about, um, I want to share something from my spiritual grandfather, Suzuki Roshi, our spiritual grandfather. He wrote a beautiful piece uh, on um, waterfalls and death and composure. <laughs> so he tells a story about going to Yosemite Park, National Park, and he saw a huge waterfall. I think it was like 1,300 feet down. And he talked about how it was coming down like a curtain from the top of a mountain and how he could feel it was coming down slowly. You know, we often think of waterfalls as quick and rushing, but it was this kind of slow free fall down. And then he noticed how the water doesn't come down as one stream, but it trickles into many tiny streams. 
So I'm going to read you what he says. He said, I thought it must be a very difficult experience for each drop of water to come down from the top of such a high mountain. It takes time, you know, a long time for the water finally to reach the bottom of the waterfall. And it seems to me that our human life may be like this. We have many difficult experiences in our life, but at the same time, I thought, the water was not originally separated, but was one whole river. Only when it is separated does it have some difficulty in falling. It's as if the water does not have any feeling when it is one whole river. Only when separated into many drops can it begin to have or to express some feeling. Talking about the waterfall being separated by wind and rocks and being moved around, all these little drops banging into each other. <laughs> little sangha members. And he says, you have difficulty because you have feeling. You have attached to the feeling you have without knowing just how this feeling is created. When you do not realize that you're one with the river or one with the universe, you have fear. Whether it is separated into drops or not, water is water. Our life and death are the same thing. When we realize this fact, we have no fear of death anymore, and we have no actual difficulty in our life. When the water returns to its original oneness with the river, it no longer has any individual feeling to it. It resumes its own nature and finds its natural composure. How very glad the water must be to come back to the original river. If this is so, what feeling will we have when we die? I think we are like the water in the dipper. We will have composure then, perfect composure. There's so many moments in the course of a day where we feel as if whatever is happening to us is um, shaking up our composure. It almost feels like a threat, you know, a threat to the self, a threat to um, a kind of evenness or ground we've kind of pasted together. So we, we, we practice these little deaths. So when we are of service to others and go out and meet with clients, with people who are dying or who are imprisoned or who are suffering, we can be with their suffering because our composure is born out of our suffering. peace and the joy is because we have confidence 
in ourselves. We don't need to keep the world a certain way in order for us to feel and live and breathe and we can fall down the hill. <laughs> we can be like those little drops rushing through life. So this is what we're doing today. I really encourage you to um, keep practicing this. You know, start, return to the body, the, just the first level of composure. Find the uprightness as best as you can. It gets harder as the day goes on because our body tires. But even when our body's tired, we don't have to pull ourselves together, we can gently adjust and find composure even with a tired, hurt back, with an agitated mind, with a throat that's dry. And then see if you might gather your mind, keep gathering your mind as it, as it wants to go wandering. Don't gather it too tightly, let it notice, but see what you're doing. And then when the feelings come up, meet them with an open heart, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, as big as a river. And then don't forget that we're sitting on the land and on the earth and that all our ancestors are with us. And so we can just deeply take our seat. And breathe. Then at the end of our day, the last bell rings, we go to bed, we get up in the morning, and trust me, people will feel your effort. They'll feel what you've cultivated for yourself and for all beings. And you'll feel it. Our practice is to create a sense of who we are that's so vast that no feeling is too big. So don't shut down what's inside of you. Just rest. 
remember the naturalness of our composure, of our capacity to be one with things, to clue things in, care for them with sensitivity and brightness and energy, and that we're all doing this together. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.